If you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 28 today uh, as we come to the end of the ninth chapter of Hebrews. Uh, as you can see, today we have the Lord's table. That will be our time of response to God's Word. And so uh, we invite everyone who's made a public profession of your faith in Christ to come to the table with us at the end of our service today. Uh, if you've yet to publicly place your trust in Jesus, then we would ask that you observe uh, as we come to the table this morning as the body of Christ. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 9 towards the end of it now, uh, seeing what the writer has communicated that Jesus indeed is our great high priest. He is the mediator of a new covenant and we are called to place our trust fully in him for the forgiveness of our sins. We've seen the significance of the blood of Jesus and how it's through this blood that the new covenant is sealed. And so we'll continue in our study now by looking at Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23. And we want to invite you at our reverence for God's word to stand if you're able to, as I read our passage for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, having communicated about the blood of the covenant and the purification of the tabernacle, the writer now says this. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. You will pray with me. Father, I do pray that You might help us to clearly understand Your Word today. That You would help us to push back those things that might distract our thoughts or keep our minds from wandering. I pray, Lord, in these moments that we could focus our attention on Your Word and specifically on the significant of, significance of the Lord's table that we're coming to today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may not know uh, the name of the 19th century teacher and poet, Sarah Hale, but you probably know one of her most famous poems. Uh, Mary had a little lamb. Uh, that's one that we all learn as children, and it's one that's been around for quite some time. In fact, it's one that Sarah herself wrote when she was a school teacher in the early 1800s. Uh, she was in a rural community, and she observed one day as a student named Mary 
uh, was coming towards the schoolhouse, and you can guess what was following along behind her. It was a little lamb. And so she wrote that famous poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Uh, she would go on to be quite an accomplished poet and writer and editor. In fact, she would edit two women's journals and she would use this prominence that she gained uh, to fight for the end of slavery as well as to petition the U.S. presidents throughout the years to have a national day to thank God. She wanted us to have a, a national day of remembrance, a national day of thanksgiving. Now, up until this point in the early to mid-1800s, there had been Thanksgiving celebrations. In fact, many states would have a, a statewide Thanksgiving, but there was no national holiday of Thanksgiving. And that all changed from her prompting, especially during the presidency of President uh, Lincoln. It was during Lincoln's presidency, actually during the Civil War, that he passed a proclamation that we have an annual day of thanksgiving. It happened in 1863, and I want to read to you some of the things that he said as he proclaimed this day of thanksgiving for our nation. He wrote this, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our benevolent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up ascriptions justly due to Him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble hearts pray for our national wickedness and disobedience. The first Thanksgiving that was celebrated as a nation was a call to prayer and a call to repent. My, how things have changed. And now as we consider Thanksgiving, we probably don't think about a national day of prayer, especially a national call to repentance. We probably think more about gathering with families and food and football. If you watch TV, you would think if you knew nothing else that Thanksgiving was just a, a shopping preparation day uh, for all the Black Friday sales that are coming. But even in our secular times, that there's still a moment there when many people will pray on Thanksgiving. And many people, as they gather around the table this week, as they gather with their families, they'll take an opportunity, they'll take a moment to thank God, to count their blessings, and to offer thanksgiving. In fact, that's something that many still do, not just at a Thanksgiving meal, but over many meals. Meals are, are a prompt for many of us to thank God for His provision. And I believe that as a Christian, there's no more important meal that we have together than the Lord's Supper. Because when we come to the Lord's table together, it's an opportunity for us to acknowledge our fallenness, our wickedness. It's an opportunity for us to set our gaze and our eyes on Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity for us to have thankful hearts for what Christ has done, is doing, and what He promises to one day do. And we're prompted to consider these things every time we come to the Lord's table together. We're prompted to do these things as we consider the words that we've read in Hebrews chapter 9. 
Well, we've come to this section in Hebrews 9 where the writers made clear what it is that Jesus has done as our great high priest, what he is doing as our mediator, and what he will one day do through his second coming. And so I want us to consider these things as we walk through this passage together today, especially as we consider what it means that Jesus has put away sin once for all. We'll begin with that first point there in your outline because Jesus has put away sin once and for all. Those who trust in Christ have been saved. We have been saved. Uh, The writer here again shows us how the earthly tabernacle was a shadow of the things to come. A copy of the things to come. And we've talked about that, how everything in the tabernacle pointed directly forward to Jesus. And now the writer says Jesus has come, but not only has He come, He's died on the cross, He's been raised from the dead, and now He's entered into the heavenly places. Now through the blood of Jesus, He's gone into the holy of holies. And not only that, now He gives us access directly to the Father. He says we have been saved by this work that Jesus has already done notice in verse 24 he says jesus has entered and not that he's one day going to enter not that he's in the process of entering no he has done this and why has he done this he says is to appear in the presence of god on our behalf and notice what he tells us he does not appear in the presence of god on our behalf to repeatedly offer himself up for sin No, He has done this once for all. In fact, the writer makes it clear that if Jesus' role was one of perpetually, repeatedly offering Himself up, he says then He would have had to have done that from the foundation of the world and He would have to do that through all eternity. But we see the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ in that He offered Himself up once for all and that was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin and because of that we have been saved those in trust who trust in christ have been saved this is how the scripture speaks of our salvation ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 paul writes for by grace you have been saved through faith it's not of your own doing it's the gift of god not as a result of works so that no one may boast. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're reminded from Hebrews 9 that this is a work that has been accomplished already. And we're reminded of that every time we come to the Lord's table together. We come to this table and the first thing that we share is the bread and we're reminded of the Passover meal that Jesus had with the disciples. And it's significant that when Jesus had that Passover meal with the disciples, that He had unleavened bread, bread without leaven. It takes us all the way back to the exodus of God's people when God delivered them out of Egypt. 
It was during that time that God instituted for them the Passover. And during that time, He instituted for them the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That unleavened bread was a reminder of God delivering His people out of their slavery and taking them on that journey to the land of promise. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us many of them didn't make it all the way to the promised land, but that wasn't because God wasn't faithful. It's because they were not faithful. That unleavened bread would remind them in generations to come of the provision of God and of the faithfulness of God. That when it was time to deliver them, God did it so swiftly. There wasn't time for the bread to rise. He said, take unleavened bread with you as a reminder. And every year at that Passover meal, that would remind them of God's deliverance. And when we come to this table together, friends, we are reminded of God's deliverance as well. When we take that unleavened bread, it's a reminder to us that for those who are in Christ, there was a day that you and I were slaves to sin. There was a day when we were lost in our sins and we could not rescue ourselves. There was a day that God sent us a deliverer in Jesus Christ and He reached down and snatched us out of our desperate estate and He is taking us to the land of promise. As a reminder of the swift and complete deliverance that God offers through the Gospel of Jesus Christ through which we have been saved we're also reminded as we look to this passage that point two those who trust in christ are being saved we are being saved notice there in verse 26 we read that jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and so we see here this complete finished work of jesus christ Our symbols in the church today are very significant. And the symbol behind me of the cross has significance. It's very significant that we don't portray Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus isn't on the cross. Jesus has finished the work that was done on the cross. He has finished the work of paying the debt of sin. That is finished. The writer of Hebrews here makes it clear. Jesus is not perpetually suffering for our sin. If that were the case, He would have had to done it from the foundation of the world and throughout all eternity. But it is sufficient in that He has paid the debt of sin once for all. And yet we see that Jesus has an ongoing ministry to followers of Christ today. And that ongoing ministry is not one of perpetually suffering and paying for sin. No, that ministry is one of praying and interceding on our behalf. It's what we looked at in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, where we read, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for us. Again, we're reminded here, of the absolute fullness of the ministry to Jesus to us today, that He always lives to make intercession for us. I pointed out already that in our culture today, especially in the church today, we're so quick to say we're praying for someone. 
Uh, even this morning, you've probably heard people make prayer requests or they've shared things with you in the hallways and Sunday school classes. And, and maybe you've said, well, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. And, and I hope that you are praying. But sometimes we can say those words and not really back them up. And sometimes we can say, oh, I'm praying for you and spend very little time actually praying for someone. Sometimes we'll just throw out there, oh, I'm praying when, when we're not really praying at all. That's not the case with our intercessor in heaven. Jesus is praying for us. And Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So when you're suffering and I'm suffering, we know that Jesus is faithful to pray. And when I'm tempted and you're tempted, we know that Jesus is faithful to pray. And when no one else is praying, and when we're not even praying for ourselves, we know that Jesus is faithful to to pray. This is the ongoing work he is doing. And the work we see in the scripture is that one of the things he's praying for is for your sanctification and mine. He's praying for us to grow in the Christian life. He's praying for us to grow more and more like him and less and less like our old self. He's praying for us to say no to temptation and to say yes to walking by faith. And so what we see here is that those two trust in Christ, we are being saved through this sanctifying work as Jesus is praying for us. And this too is how the Scripture speaks of our salvation. Not just that we have been saved, but that we are being saved. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 15, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Friends, this is a great encouragement to us. Because it means when we struggle and when we doubt and when we lack faith, we don't just look back to the fact that we have been saved. We look to the truth that God is doing a saving work in us even now today. We are being saved through the Word and through Jesus. And when we come to the Lord's table together, we're reminded that we are being saved. We come to the table, we take the cup. And the cup, Jesus says, is a reminder to us of the blood that He would shed on the cross. And it's through that blood that we have been saved and that we are being saved. In fact, the way the Scripture speaks of the blood of Christ is that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Not just has cleansed us, not just will cleanse us, but there's a cleansing work going on through the blood of Jesus Christ. We read it this way in 1 John 1. This is the message we heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in Him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And this is why we consistently go before God in prayer. This is why we consistently need to repent of sin. We don't become automatically sinless the moment that we're saved. And so we see this ongoing saving work of Christ in our life, cleansing us from all sin. His death was sufficient to cover all our sin, and He is cleansing us even now through His blood. And we're reminded of this when we come to this table together. 
In fact, the instruction we're given in 1 Corinthians is that we're not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And I think that's created some confusion for some. In fact, I had a conversation not long ago, just a couple years ago, with somebody who was visiting our church and we were having the Lord's Supper and, and they pulled me aside afterwards and said, well, I, I didn't take it today because I don't, I don't think I'm worthy to take it. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, the Scripture says not to take it in an unworthy manner and I, I just don't feel like I'm worthy. And I said, why don't you feel like you're worthy? And we talked about the Gospel and they understood the Gospel. We talked about sin and they had repented of sin, but, but they realized they were still a sinner. And then they said, I don't know that I'm worthy because I'm a sinner. And I reminded her, as I'll remind you, as I remind myself every time I come to this table, that this table is not for perfect people, but it's for people who trust in a perfect Christ. That the question is not, are you worthy? The question is, is He worthy? And He's absolutely worthy. No, we're not to take it in an unworthy manner. Meaning this, if you are in unrepentant sin today, you're heaping judgment on yourself by taking this cup and this bread. But if you are a repentant follower of Jesus Christ, if you're turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, then we come to this table because of His absolute worth. He is doing a saving work in us if we're trusting in Him. He's done a saving work in us if we're trusting in Him. And He reminds us here in His Word that He will do a saving work in us if we will trust in Him. Point three, those who trust in Christ, the Scripture tells us, will be saved. We will be. And so the Scripture speaks of our salvation in in all of these ways. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And so having reminded us here of this great saving work that Christ has done and how He's entered into the Holy of Holies, the writer now turns his attention and points us forward. Much as we are pointed forward when we come to the Lord's table. And notice what he says here in verse 27. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He makes so much clear in this passage. He he rules out any foolish notion that somehow we're going to be reincarnated or get a second chance or have a do-over in our life. He he rules out any notion that there's going to be some type of intermediary, uh, intermediary state where we're somehow going to get a second chance to believe or we're going to be ministered to in a purgatory. Though he says we're going to live, we're going to die, and we're going to face Jesus says there's going to be a judgment. I think here he's speaking of the final judgment that takes place when Jesus comes again because that's what he immediately turns his attention to. He talks about the second coming of Christ. He says it's not to deal with sin. Sin's been dealt with. But now he's come to, to judge those who did not trust in him and to save those who did trust in him. And this is how Jesus speaks of his return. One of salvation and one of judgment. In Matthew chapter 16, Matthew records Jesus saying this, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. 
And so the Scripture clearly teaches that, that when Jesus returns, or, or when we die and go to Jesus, whichever comes first, that for those who haven't trusted in Christ, that there's a judgment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And Christ says He'll repay us for everything that we've done. That there will be judgment on those who did not trust in Him. But for those who do trust in Him, what does He say? He says He's not coming to deal with sin. He's dealt with that sin in our life. No, He is coming to save us. And that's why we eagerly anticipate His coming. That's why we look forward to His coming because we're in Christ. He's not coming to judge us. He's coming to save us. There's a difference there. Maybe you can think back to a time, maybe it's as recent for you if you're young today, uh, when you did something wrong and you knew when your mom or your dad got home and found out what you did, there was going to be a consequence. I remember when I was a young boy, I'd, I'd done... I don't remember what it was. I did a lot of bad stuff, but I'd done something and I knew my mom was upset and dad was the enforcer. And so I knew when dad got home, judgment was coming. And so I I figured out this scheme. I thought, well, if he thinks I've run away, then I can't get judged. And so I opened up my window and I, I put out this real neat note and I hid under my bed. And I'm pretty sure my legs were sticking fully out from under the bed, but Dad walked in, he knew right away where I was, and so a judgment came. <laughs> and maybe you had those experiences where you, you were not looking forward to that. Why? Because you don't want the consequence. But notice what the Scripture says here. If we're in Jesus, if we've trusted in Jesus, our consequence has been dealt with. Our debt has been paid. Jesus has delivered us. And we long for His coming. We eagerly anticipate it because He comes not to judge us. He comes to rescue us. He comes to save us. And we eagerly anticipate that. We look forward to that. We we long for that. We've got a lot of young people this time of year, probably your kids, your grandkids, nephews, nieces, who they're, they're eagerly anticipating something. They're looking forward to Christmas. When I was a kid, I I still love Christmas, but I remember as a child, I just eagerly anticipated Christmas. And I mean, I'm not talking about November. I'm talking about in July, I was singing Christmas carols. We had this little paperback Christmas carol book, and, and I didn't know what it meant to look to Jesus, and I didn't even understand Christmas is about Jesus, but I sang all kinds of songs about Jesus because I couldn't wait for Christmas in July. Uh, we would get the, and this won't make any sense to some of you today, but we would actually, uh, we didn't get online to look at things. We would get this book in the mail from Sears, and we'd go through and start circling our wish list in it. And I eagerly anticipated it because I knew what Christmas would bring. Well, there'd be a few of these gifts from this book, and there'd be time out of school, and there'd be all these celebrations and gatherings and, and fun things, and I eagerly anticipated it. And then I grew up and I trusted in Christ and I eagerly anticipated all the more now because I understand what it's about. And I can look back during that season of Advent and I can think about how God's people for generations, how they were longing for the coming of Jesus. Now, not 
presence, not time out of school. They, they were longing for the coming of Christ. And the Scripture says, just as they eagerly anticipated then, we all the more are to eagerly anticipate and we are to long for the return of Jesus. Because when He comes, we read here, He will save us. And we will be saved. This is how the Scripture also speaks of our salvation. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Jesus says in Matthew 24, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is how the Scripture speaks of our salvation. That this is the assurance that if we're truly in Christ, we've truly trusted Christ, we're going to persevere. He says those who endure, those who persevere the end will be saved. So we, we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. It is testimony to the absolute hold that Jesus has on us when we trust in Him. And He says we're in His hand. We're in the Father's hand. No one can snatch us out of His hand. It is the absolute confidence and surety that we have when we trust in Jesus. And we're reminded of it every time we come to the Lord's table together. Because Jesus told His disciples as they gathered for that meal, He says, this is what you're going to do every time you gather together until I return. He says, you're going to be looking ahead every time you come to this table. And so friends, that's what we do. We come to this table today and we... We take this unleavened bread and we take this cup and we look towards the day when we will feast with God in heaven. When we will have a feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We look forward to the day that the Scripture tells us God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. No more pain, no more crying anymore. These things have are no longer. We read about this in Revelation 21. We get a glimpse here of what that day will be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And that means that when we come to this table today, some of us may come to this table with tears in our eyes. But one day, He says, He will wipe the tears from our eyes. I mean, some of us may come to this table today grieving and mourning loss that we have suffered 
in this year or in recent years, but he says one day there'll be no more grieving and there'll be no more mourning and there'll be no more loss. It means we may come to this table today as those who are suffering or watching the people that we love suffer, but he says one day no more. Behold, I am making all things new. And we will hear that voice from Jesus himself one day. And we eagerly anticipate that day every time we come to this table together. We look back at what Jesus has done. We look around at what he is doing. And we look ahead to what he will do. And this is what we do when we come to the table. And so we're going to come to the table now together as the body of Christ.